I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and, yes, one more time, turn to the book of Job. We've got this Sunday and, Lord willing, next Sunday before we wrap up our uh, Job series. Uh, I was reading something recently where a pastor started Job in the, book of, in the month of March and it took him all the way till the end of November to finish. We're not doing that. We're not taking it that long. We, we will uh, wrap this up in a couple of weeks. But uh, he actually said that when he announced it was the last sermon in Job, the congregation stood and applauded. So that's uh, not really something I long for to see that kind of applause. Years ago, I, I heard a, a speaker in a, a chapel tell a story on himself. He was a young Christian freshman in college, attended a large state university, and somehow felt it was his job to stand for Christ, especially in one class. In that particular course, he somehow believed that as this that he should challenge the professor when the professor made a statement or brought up an issue that he disagreed with. Most of the time throughout the semester, the professor was relatively patient and would listen to the objection and then kind of swat it away like one swats at a fly. But throughout the course, throughout the semester, the objections, the, abate, the debates, they continued, the interruptions continued. And, and one day, the, this young freshman raised his hand to bring up yet another point of, con, of contention and the professor stared him down. And then he said, that's it. And he walked over and he grabbed a chair and he brought it back and he sat it down by his desk. He said, you, here, now, we're going to have this out. We are going to have it out once and for all. And then drawing on all of his knowledge and all of his research and all of his expertise of being a professor for over 20 years, he just launched into a verbal barrage that simply wilted this student and left him humiliated. The student all of a sudden was aware of how much he didn't know. The speaker said at that moment, he became a different student from that point on. Now you say, Pastor Scott, that's pretty crazy that you remember that. Well, I recalled that story because the speaker told that story just before he launched into the passage we're dealing with today. We're in beginning in Job 38 today. Uh, Job 38 is where God finally steps in on stage, and it's as if God steps onto the stage carrying an empty chair and says, Job, have a seat. We're going to have a talk. Job's been wanting to have it out with God for a while as we've gone through this book. He's been pushed into a corner trying to defend himself by his three friends. He's grown in his sense of self-righteousness that, yeah, I do have something to say to God. Yeah, he should listen to me. And he's demanded that God to see God, and now his wish is granted, and Pardon the pun, as we'll see it in a minute. It's going to blow him away. God doesn't need a lot of speeches. He gives two speeches. Two speeches that leaves Job speechless, humbled, and repentant. Now, you may find yourself a bit confused. 
Because we know this whole thing started because Job was looked upon and, and actually described by God as a righteous man. And God allowed the, the accuser to bring him through these awful tests, losing all his wealth, losing his children, losing his health. And, and all that time, Job didn't lose his integrity. He didn't curse God. He didn't lose his faith. But he did grow in his demandingness. He grew in his desire, actually his demand to have an answer, an accounting from God. He grew in his, self, in his sense of self-righteousness. And he began to think that somehow he and God were on a similar plane. And God says that needs to be addressed. And it needs to be addressed in a way you're not going to forget. Now, if you're a little bit like me, and you've been going through this book with us, you've been wondering, okay, when's God step in? And it seems odd the way God steps in at the end. Because when we see this passage, we're going to see God speaking to Job out of the storm. And you're thinking, oh, Job, poor Job. Job just needs a hug. He, he just needs a hug right now. He doesn't need to be yelled at again. He just needs a hug. And as I thought about that, I realized as I kind of worked my way through how God speaks, God seems to speak to us in the tone that we need in the moment. You know, I, I went back to Exodus 19 when the children of Israel coming out of Egypt are gathering around Mount Sinai and, and, and they needed to know the power and the might and the strength of God. So he comes down on the mountain in a cloud and there's thunder and there's lightning and, and he tells Moses, if even a goat comes up on the mountain, they are going to experience my holiness and they're going to die. And the people are like, Whoa, Moses, you go right on ahead. We'll just stay right here. But then you go a few books later to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 3, and you've got, uh, you've got the boy Samuel. He's, he's at the temple. He's at the temple and he's there and, and Eli is the, uh, the, the priest. And God wants to speak to Samuel. But this kid, somewhere between five and ten years old, he doesn't need power and might. He needs, he needs that voice of a father. And so God calls him quietly in the night. You go to 1 Kings 19 and you have Elijah. Elijah, the prophet of God. Elijah, who had gone up on Mount Carmel and had gathered the priests of Baal with him. And Elijah, who had called on them to have, they were going to have this contest. And whoever has their God rain fire down on the altar, that's the God that will worship. And, and the story is, after hours and hours, nothing happens from Baal because Baal is a false god. And so Elijah rebuilds the temple of God using 12 stones, puts two bulls on it, and then has servants just douse it with water. There's a moat around this, and it's doused with water. And he prays a prayer, and God brings fire down that burns up the altar and the sacrifice and the Baal altar, everything. And the people go, the Lord, he is God. And God sends rain, and Baal runs down the mountain, Elijah runs down the mountain, and he runs ahead of the, the chariot even of the king. And, and by the time he's down there, he gets word from Queen Jezebel, who was an evil queen. And she said, 
I'm going to have you slain tomorrow. Elijah runs and he runs and he runs and he, he's worn out. He's depressed. He's wondering why he's done what he's done. Nothing happened the way he thought. Then he gets called to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the place where God first came to Israel. And he climbs the mountain and God brings a storm and an earthquake and everything. And finally, God comes to this man who's worn out, depressed and tired. And he speaks to him. In a still small voice. Because what Elijah needed then was the voice of a friend who says, hey, I'm here. You can trust me. God speaks to us in the tone that we need. Job has been through the ringer. We know that. But as his trial went on, he seems to think that somehow he can come and address God in the manner that he wants. He has challenged God. We saw that in in chapter 31. He challenged God to sign his affidavit. Sign your complaint against me. In other words, come on, let's bring it into court. I got something I can say with you. So he's challenging God, and God is going to address him in a way that, that he shows him that, Job, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You see, sometimes God brings somebody into your life at just the right time to put their arm around you and to walk with you and just to encourage you. Sometimes God brings somebody into your life to grab you by the shirt and say, you need to listen up right now. And sometimes God speaks to you as you're just sitting there in the quiet of the day, maybe reading your Bible, and and something comes into your mind as you read it, and God says, this is my word for you. And sometimes God might speak to you in, in a dream. But rest assured, God always speaks to us in the tone that we need. And what Job needed was strength. One theologian wrote this. He said, God's answer is not an idea. It's not a proposition. It's it's not like the conclusion of a theorem. God's answer to Job is himself. You see, sometimes we just need God. And that's where Job is. So God makes his presence known in a very powerful way. Listen as as I read the first few verses of chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you? When I laid the earth's foundation, tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? God makes his presence known to Job in a powerful way. He comes in the storm. Job was the focal point of the test, and he specifically is the one God addresses. 
The language in chapter 38 is very clear. Only Job is being addressed at this moment. Now, the three friends and Elihu may be standing back listening and hoping that, you know, that it just stays focused on Job. But God is speaking to Job. And the question you say is, why? Because of all the ones present at that moment, Job, more than anyone else, truly needed God. In fact, that's the only explanation Job really needs, but he thinks he needs more. You know, sometimes we want answers, don't we? Sometimes we want clarity. Sometimes we want completion. And maybe when we want all of that, maybe what we really need is just to be with God. I think that's why when I've been in the presence of somebody who's facing a life-ending illness and maybe only in their final hours, what I find them doing is, especially if they're a person of faith, they are clinging to God, holding on to their faith in Him. And if you've ever been there, if you've ever been in that position, you know, you know that you walk away more blessed than you thought you were going to bring a blessing. You walk away and you are blessed by their faith. You are blessed by their tenacity and holding on to God. They are stripped of everything but their relationship and faith in God. And they have discovered that when everything else is taken away, that's enough. So God speaks. And what he's going to do is he's going to walk Job through some of the basic realities of the universe. And what I want to do this morning, I want to look at what God doesn't say, and then we're going to look at what God does say. We're going to finish with Job's responses, and then we're going to wrap up with just a few things that we can learn. Now, I was hoping that at this point, somewhere in chapters 38 through the beginning of 42, somewhere, I was hoping that there would be that one verse that one verse that I could circle in my Bible, that I could underline, that I could memorize, that one verse so that when someone's on the phone and they're weeping and they're trying to make sense of life or I'm sitting with someone and, and, and I've got my arm around them and they're just crying tears trying to make sense of it, that I could say this verse and that, and that verse would just like be like the heavens open it up, you know, and they go, oh, Pastor, that's just what I needed. You're so wise. You're not going to find that verse in Job 38, 1 through 42, 6 that we're going to look at tonight. It's not there. You see, God, in all of this talking, does not address the issue of suffering. He doesn't. Uh, I've maintained with you throughout our study that I am convinced more and more that the book of Job is not about suffering. The point of the book of Job is about faith in the middle of suffering. So more than anyone else, God knows the pain and heartache and brokenness and agony that sin brought into his creation I believe on Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and sin entered into the world, I think God grieved because he knew what they had plunged this world into. He knows. And what he desires is that we remember that he is greater than all of our suffering and that through suffering we'll still see him. So God doesn't address suffering. God 
I mean, I would have, but that's why he's God and I'm not. God doesn't defend his character to Job or Job's friends. He doesn't go back and pick apart their arguments and, and all. He doesn't defend his character. Now, he's going to address Job's friends. We'll see that next week. But he doesn't address them here. The fact is, God doesn't need to defend himself to you and to me. He, he doesn't need to do that. So he's not interested in some sort of back and forth petty debate about justice. Some have described God's speech as starting in the storm and then dying down a little bit. So he kind of walks Job through a journey. I don't know. I know it says he spoke through the storm. Job will speak at the end of 39 and God will rev up the storm again because Job needs to know about God. So God doesn't defend his character to Job or his friends. What does God do? The first thing God does is God reveals his eternal creative power. Those verses I just read, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 38, those verses bring to light the finite nature of humanity and the infinite nature of God. I mean, you know, think of Job sitting down on his chair, you know, sitting there kind of cowering, looking up at God like this. Where were you? I wasn't, I wasn't there. Where were you? And I, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't alive yet. I wasn't born. God wants Job to know, Job, I am the creator. You're sitting in a chair. You're not. And so God reveals his eternal creative power. God knows all the answers to those questions before they're asked. Job doesn't know any of the answers to those questions. And that continues on. From verse 8 all the way to verse 38, God reveals his power over the elements. Look at these, these verses. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? In other words, how, how does the sea know when to stop at the shore? Well, that's the tides and the moon and all. Yeah, who set all that up? Oh, maybe you did, God. He, goes, he says, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Now, he's using all kinds of figurative and metaphorical language. But you know what? None of us give orders to the, to the dawn. When I was six years old, we moved from West Virginia, my birthplace, to Kansas. I've told you before, Kansas is named after the Kansas Native American tribe, and it's, it's a word that tends to mean land of the south wind or people of the south wind, and it is windy. I was six. My little sister is four years, so she was two, so we were there for about two years. She was now four years old, and she came in one day after church, and she was livid. You see, she had just heard a story in Sunday school. And so she thought she was going to try it. She came in and she marched up to my mom and she said, Mommy, I went outside and I raised my hands and I said, peace, peace still, and if the wind is still blowing. Yeah. You and I can't command the weather. We would love to, but we can't. God says, I can. Have you ever, you know, he goes on, he says, 
verse 18 really is the key verse for this whole section. Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. the, The answer is no, I haven't. You know, we're still sending telescopes out to try to figure out the vast expanses of of, of our whole universe. You know, we're still trying to figure out how things work. You know, we God talks about being in the deepest places of the ocean, the Mariano Trench, seven miles down. The pressure is so great, there have to be special submarines to go down there. God says, I walk down there. I got it. I know that. And he just keeps going on about light and darkness. He talks about storehouses of snow. We know that there aren't storehouses of snow. But the idea is God says, I am in control of all of this, Job. You got to realize none of this catches me off guard. And in fact, if you go over, and I, I check this out, because if you go over to chapter 38, verse 31, you have these Words, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's domain over the earth? I got to look at that and I got, I thought, how old are the names of the constellations? And do you know they can go back some 17,000 years and find references to some of the constellations? You know, do you, have you ever, Orion is about the only one, Big Dipper, Little Dipper, Orion. Those are the three that I know. You know, Big Dipper, Little Dipper, Orion, the three stars in the belt. Uh, the, the Pleiades is a, is a cluster of some 800 stars 410 light years from the earth, and they include the Big Dipper and Little Dipper. 17,000, you know, God's saying, have you figured that out yet, Job? I know. I know about those constitutions. I brought them forth. I know where they are. I know how to find them. I know what sky they're going to be in and when. I know all of that. Have you comprehended this? Verse 33 goes, Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? The answer is no. You can't do any of that. Job, you need to be aware of my eternal creative power. Job, you need to be aware of my power over the elements. God reveals his power over the elements. Job needs to know the almighty, powerful God, and he needs to know it in the midst of the storm as he's sitting on his chair cowering at the God of power and might because that's the God Job has kind of lost sight of. God does something else. In chapter 38, beginning in verse 39 and moving all the way through the rest of chapter uh, 39, God reveals his authority over the animal kingdom. And that is a great read. As one person has said, it's like God invites Job to take a walk with him through the zoo. And he questions him about animal after animal. Do you hunt prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in the thicket? Answer, no, no, I don't do that. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? No, I really don't know that. 
Do you watch the doe bear her font? No, haven't done that. And he goes down all the way, you know, and I love the one with the uh, ostrich. He says, the wing, verse 13 of 39, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor is in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and the rider. God reveals his authority, his knowledge of the animal kingdom. And in this first speech, God presents himself to Job in a powerful way as the creator, the sustainer, and the provider of the universe with exact, intimate knowledge of everything that takes place and how it works and how it fits together. There is nothing in this world that is not under God's constant watchful eye. It's as if he's saying, Job, I heard you. I'm fully aware of your plight. I am fully capable of managing, and, and I am just, and I deal with all injustice and wickedness, and I heard you. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Are you going to correct me, Job? Are you going to challenge me? And Job responds. After two chapters, Job responds, and he's a different man. Gone is the demandingness. Gone is the desire to enter the courtroom. Gone is any sense of pride. You see, God's power should humble all of us. Let him who accuses God answer him, Job 40, verse 2. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job, you wanted to contend with me. Job, you've accused me of being unaware, unjust. Job, you think you're worthy of a debate with me, so speak up. This is what you wanted. And here's a side point. Sometimes the worst thing God can do is give us exactly what we think we want. Job says, I, I'm unworthy. That doesn't mean I'm invaluable. It doesn't mean that I'm, he's saying, I realize I'm insignificant. I realize how small I am. We need to sometimes realize how small we are. If you have the opportunity sometime, I would encourage you, to drive or fly to Phoenix, Arizona, and then spend the night because you got to get some rest, and then drive up through the red rocks of Sedona and drive up to the Grand Canyon. Don't just look at the Grand Canyon. That'll be enough. But I want you to stay the night. 
And I want you to go out in the middle of the night, praying that it's a clear night, and look up and look at all the stars that you see without any of that Chicago light pollution. You will just stare. I remember being there with my daughter and my son. We were staring up and just amazed. And then as if on cue, God sends a shooting star right across the clouds. And we were like, wow. And we just stared. You know, it was interesting. The next morning, we got up really early. Charlene and the kids and I, we got up very, very early. And we went and uh, went to a, a lookout. And we just waited for the sun to rise. Something that happens every day of the year. And I remember being there waiting for the sun to rise. All of a sudden, I was listening. Over there, I heard some folks speaking a language that had that Eastern European. Over here were some folks speaking Spanish. I think I heard somebody speaking French over here. There were some folks from Asia over here. It was like in, in that moment, the world came together to do one thing, to watch God recreate a new day. And you watch the sunrise over that amazing Grand Canyon. It's like, wow, I'm insignificant. I'm so small. That's what Job said. God, I, I realize that. And then he goes on. He says, I put my hand over my mouth. I, I, I don't have any more words to say. I am dumbstruck. And I'm touched. Are you touched by that? God isn't. You see, Job's not quite there yet. Oh, he's not taking up any new arguments, but he hasn't fully let go of the old ones. And God knows that. See, God can see that Job is not 100% convinced. Imagine God with a sigh. The storm revs up again. And all of a sudden, we have the same thing. Maybe Job started to stand up from his chair. He got sit back down. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. The same storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Did, haven't we already gone through this? God says, we haven't already gone through this. In fact, let me read the next uh, few verses, verses 6 through 14 from the message uh, from Eugene, the late G Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Do you presume to tell me what I'm doing wrong? Are you calling me a sinner so you can be a saint? Do you have an arm like my arm? Can you shout in the thunder the way I can? Go ahead, show your stuff. Let's see what you're made of, what you can do. Unleash your outrage. Target the arrogant. Lay them flat. Target the arrogant and bring them to their knees. Stop the wicked in their tracks. Make mincemeat out of them. Dig a mass grave and dump them in it. Faceless corpses in an unmarked grave. I'll gladly step aside and hand things over to you. You can surely save yourself with no help from me. God says, Job, you don't have what it takes to run this universe. You aren't me. And then what God does is very interesting. For the next full chapter, chapter 40 and 41, all God does is describe 
two very wild and dangerous animals. And I think, why does God spend all of this time in a description, a very detailed description of these mightiest kingdoms, that, mightiest animals that anyone can think of at the time? He talks about first Behemoth and then Leviathan. Now, he describes the Behemoth, and it's just crazy. Uh, and he says, I want you to consider behemoth look at him verse 15 of chapter 40 which i made along with you which feeds on grass like an ox what strength it has in its loins what power in the muscles of its belly its tail sways like a cedar the sinews of its thighs are close-knit its bones are tubes of brawn its limbs like rods of iron it ranks first among the work of god yet its maker can approach it with its sword the hills bring it their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. And he goes on, he says, the raging river doesn't alarm it. And he says, can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap and pierce its nose? Answer, no. And then he goes on, he talks about Leviathan, this Leviathan that you can't pull in with a fish hook, that you, that you can't pierce it with spears. This Leviathan, if you lay on a hand on it, verse 41.8, if you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and you're never going to do it again. You touch him once, you won't touch him again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is over. Powering this amazing thing. And he finishes by saying in verse 33, nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. And you say, why does God do that? Why does he spend all this space on two very large and frightening animals? What are these animals? There are those who've tried to modernize these animals. There are those that say behemoth is a hippopotamus. Now, let me, let me ask you something. Have you ever been to the Brookfield Zoo? Have you ever been to the Lincoln Park Zoo or any other zoo where they have a hippopotami, which is plural for hippopotamus? I've seen a hippopotamus. Their tail is about that long. I've seen a cedar tree. It's a lot bigger than that. I don't think, if your Bible says this was a hippopotamus, you just cross that out. You can even write malarkey in there if you want. It is something far bigger than that. Maybe even like a brontosaurus. I don't know. But Job knew what it was, and he knew what it was, what it was frightening. And by the way, it says that no one can uh, capture it. There are hieroglyphs out there that show the Egyptians on the Nile slaying hippopotami. So can't be that. Leviathan. I don't know what Leviathan is. Some say it's a crocodile. Well, you know what? Crocodiles can be captured. This Leviathan cannot be captured. And in the ancient world, they weren't terribly afraid of it. Whatever this is, if you touch it, you will not touch it again. You will remember the experience. It is some kind of a large animal. Is it a mythical creature? I don't think God would deal in myths. It might be. But I think he's dealing with something that Job knew. And he's saying, Job, the reason I'm spending all this time on these two animals is simply to make this point. Absolutely nothing stands in the way of God and God's power. 
Nothing stands in God's way. Nothing is above God's power. And the storm dies down. And Job replies. Chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, and now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job has learned his lesson. I know you can do all things. That's that acknowledgement of God's almighty, unquestioned power. I spoke of things I didn't understand, including my questioning of your justice and your compassion and your concern, and I repent. You see, this book has never been about suffering. It's always been about faith. Faith is best understood from the standpoint of humility. Faith happens when I let go of my preconditions, of my preconceived notions, and fully believe that God is there no matter what. I want to leave you with just three takeaway realities today, very briefly. First one is this, when I fully humble myself before God, I discover He is fully aware. God is fully aware of you. God is fully aware of me. God is fully aware of my circumstances right now. God is fully aware of my strengths. God is fully aware of my weaknesses. God is fully aware of my humanity. There is nothing about me that God does not know. There is nothing in me that is hidden from his sight. God is is fully aware of me, and he loves me anyway. Second thing, when I fully humble myself before God, I discover he is more than capable. He's the God who created, sustains, manages the universe. He is more than capable in helping me in my current circumstances. He's more than capable of changing what needs to be changed. He is more than capable of helping me through what I think at the moment is my greatest difficulty. He is more than capable to address my deepest needs. And the God who is fully capable knows exactly how long to wait and when to step in. And he doesn't come before it's time, and he doesn't come too late. When I fully humble myself before God, I discover he is totally trustworthy. Every promise God has made in his word, he will carry out. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the manager of this universe. He makes sure his promises are fulfilled. You know, even at our best, 
you and I don't have the capability to fulfill the, every promise we make because we don't control the circumstances. So I can say to my wife, hey, this Friday night, we're going out for dinner and we're going to have a great dinner. And then something happens on Thursday that gets in the way of that. And all of a sudden, we why? Because I didn't know what was going to happen on Thursday. I only made these plans for Friday. We can't always keep our promises, even though we really want to, because we don't control the circumstances. But God does. God controls the circumstances. He's trustworthy in all things. And really, it comes full circle. I only trust as I humble myself and release all of me to him. Now, I'll be honest with you. All week long since I heard it, I have been struggling with something I read that comes out of Ukraine. Uh, if you got the email, you got the, you know, there's a clip, a video clip from our friend Dave. And he talks about hearing from one individual, a young lady who's pregnant, and asks this question. Why, with millions of people around the world praying, doesn't God stop this attack? And you know what? I don't know. I only know this. I trust that God is in control and I trust he will bring about his purposes and I humble myself before him because I don't have all the answers. Job, you and me need to know that when we are suffering and we face difficulties and hardships and trials, that life is about our relationship with God in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the daily task of living. And he's the God we can trust even when we don't understand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes it's, it's really hard. Sometimes it's really tough to figure things out. And sometimes it's really wonderful to know that we don't have to. That we can trust you, lean on you, lean into you, and know that you are there. That you do know the beginning from the end. May we remember that it's about our faith in you more than anything else. In Jesus' name, amen.